Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. This episode is going to be filled with a lot of cool information because I got to interview Tony Daly Cruz, who is the president and executive director of the Rattlesnake Conservancy. So for this episode, you may want to keep your distance because we're talking about venomous reptiles that can be recognized by a single sound, rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes are a group of venomous snakes who have a rattle at the end of their tail that makes noise when it's shaken. And we're going to talk more about the rattles when I sit down with Tony. There are about 70 different species of rattlesnakes around today. And they can be mainly found in North, South, and Central America, usually in warmer climates. This is because, like most reptiles, they're ectotherms, meaning that the outside environment controls their body temperature. And many species of rattlesnakes like to live near rocks, which give them protection from predators and a place where they can bask in the sun if they need to warm themselves up. One of the most commonly known rattlesnake species are the western and eastern diamondbacks. The western diamondback lives in the western United States, while the eastern diamondback lives in the southeastern United States. It got its name from the diamond pattern that it has on its back. And the eastern diamondback is the largest species of rattlesnake. It can get to around 5 feet long, not something you want to mess with. Another rattlesnake that you might be familiar with is the sidewinder, which usually resides in the desert. The name sidewinder comes from the way that they move, kind of slithering in a diagonal, but this gives them a lot of speed and traction on the sand. They can slither up to 18 miles per hour. Rattlesnakes are carnivores, usually eating small rodents and other small mammals. And this is part of the reason that they have this venom. They can use it to incapacitate their prey. They can strike so quickly that you wouldn't even be able to see it coming. And after paralyzing their prey, they don't chew on their food. They swallow it whole. And they have a few really cool adaptations in order to make this happen. First of all, they're able to stretch their jaw extremely far back which allows them to take in the entire animal without taking bites out of it. They also have muscles that help to move their prey down their throat into their digestive tract. And they don't really need to eat as often as we do. They only need to eat once every few weeks because it takes a much longer time for them to digest their food. You may think that because rattlesnakes are reptiles, they lay eggs, but this is only partially true. The mothers actually incubate the eggs inside of her body And then they are birthed live. The mothers don't really hang around for long after they're born, sometimes leaving them to fend for themselves after less than a day. Okay, we're going to take a break. But when we get back, you're going to hear my interview with Tony Daly Cruz, who's been around his fair share of rattlesnakes. We've got another notable figure in science to talk about. 
Today, I'm recognizing Wangari Mathai. She was an environmental activist who founded the Green Belt Movement. This movement promotes environmentalism and has helped women in Kenya plant over 50 million trees, and it's still going on today. She was also the first African woman to win the Nobel Prize. She's done so much for our earth, she deserves to be a household name. If you want to learn more about Wangari Mathai or this series, you can visit onwildlife.org. Okay, we're back. Here's my interview with Tony. Hi, Tony. How are you doing? Hey, how's it going, man? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, thank you so much for coming on to talk about rattlesnakes. I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. First, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in rattlesnakes? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped to be on here and chat with you about rattlesnakes. Um, this are bread and butter uh, that that I work with. Um, I'm the executive director of an organization called the Rattlesnake Conservancy. Uh, we're a relatively small group right now, small nonprofit based out of the Southeast. Um, I'm actually in the desert Southwest in Arizona. We've got a chapter that's starting to expand out here in, in the desert Southwest, um, but we're mostly working with rattlesnakes and North and South America. Uh, we have a really robust education program as well as a research program that's in-house as well as research that we fund. Um, so it's it's a really uh, diverse group and team that, that we work with and just excited to talk to you about rattlesnakes and some of the work that we do. That's, that's so cool. Uh, you guys are doing some re- really great work. So you talked a little bit about some research that you conduct and some that you fund. So what kind of research have you personally been a part of or conducted on rattlesnakes? Absolutely. So, you know, in my role as executive director, unfortunately, I don't get as much field time as I'd like to. Much of my time is is spent, you know, doing the fundraising and networking portions of the organization's strategic leadership. Um, but we have a number of research programs as an organization that, that we're working on right now. Um, one of them is actually a large disease monitoring study in the southeast where we're monitoring this virus called Atadenovirus. And it's one that's been detected both in captivity and rattlesnakes as well as in the wild. Uh, and there's not much known about it right now. Um, we don't know if it's like the common cold for snakes or if it's something that's a serious risk that's out there. So we're trying to learn a little bit about it. Um, we've got another one that uh, we're going to be kicking out up this next fall where we're looking at the impacts of translocation in eastern diamondbacks. And that's basically moving a snake from one place to another. Um, there's no real specified distance that defines translocation. And that's something that we're trying to do is figure out, okay, what what is a distance that would define translocation and what are some of the considerations we should look at for survival of rattlesnakes after they've been moved? Because as you know, um, you know, a lot of times people don't like having rattlesnakes in their yard, yeah. you know, so they're, they're calling us, they're calling nuisance wildlife companies or whomever they can find to say, hey, can you come move it? In the best case scenario, we're calling us to, to come and move them. Um, in the worst case, you know, sometimes people don't have the uh, the best reaction to them in their backyard. But um, one of the things we want to look at is see how well those species are doing. Um, another one that we're, we're kicking up uh, this year as well is actually looking at monitoring uh, some montane species, which are mountain species of rattlesnakes in the desert southwest. There's just not a whole lot of information known about their population status. And there's uh, there's been a lot of people that have been out in those areas, whether it's just from like a tourism perspective where people want to go and photograph them in the wild, which is great. And we support that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also uh, pretty heavy cattle grazing in some of these areas. So we want to take a look at these populations and, and see how they're doing. 
um, see how they're reacting to climate change as well with these being montane species. Climate uh, changed pretty significantly in some of these areas. So those are a couple of the projects I'm working on right now that we're, we're getting started up. Um, you know, a lot of my skill sets are in some of our um, like strategic mapping for these species where we're doing some geospatial analysis of some of these where we're trying to um, create different maps or uh, models to determine habitat suitability for species and look at large-scale conservation planning for them. Well, that's that's great. And uh, I think everybody should know that all of this research is really important for conservation and figuring out the more we know about a species is the more we're able to help their conservation and uh, help that animal thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And there's not much funding out there for this type of work, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you see people working on it, it's often going to be either people that have some self-funded research that they're doing on it. You might have a, a university researcher that got a big grant for something else and they're kind of tacking that onto it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that sets our organization apart from many others is we are one of the only organizations that offers research grants specific to just venomous reptiles and not not like studying their venom, actually studying the natural history and conservation of those species, because that's that's what our priority is. Yeah, that's that's so important. And thank you for doing that work that not a lot of people want to do. Um, yeah, for sure. So we all know that rattlesnakes have a rattle at the end of their tail. Could you talk about what this rattle's actually made out of? Because I feel like a lot of people think that it's hollow and has some kind of like balls inside of it that make a sound when you shake it. And what do they use that rattle for? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the general consensus when we talk to the public. You know, we'll have folks come up and ask us about, you know, rattles and rattlesnakes. And, and one of the things that we really like to do, because we do a lot of education and outreach programs, um, you know, rattles on rattlesnakes will often break off, um, whether that's in captivity or in the wild. And we'll actually bring some of those to the public events and let people get their hands on them, see what they feel like and see what the mechanics are of them. Um, and to tell you a little bit about rattles themselves, you know, so um, it, it's actually a little bit of a, I don't want to call it contentious, but a hotly debated item um, in the research community about really what the evolution of the rattle was for. Um, you know, you see a lot of information out there about uh, kind of an aposematic, which is, you know, basically a mimicry type thing that, that rattlesnakes were using to let uh, other animals know they were dangerous. And, uh, you know, whether that be prey items um, or, I'm sorry, predators that were trying to hurt them or maybe grazing ungulates or something like that in their area that may have stepped on them, um, you know, there's a lot of information floating out there that's, that suggests that might be true, but there's there's also a lot of situations where we're looking at these rattles that there might be other reasons for why it evolved. And I don't have an answer for you. I wish I did. This is a really <laughs> cool subject that researchers are getting into right now. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that it could have evolved in these species, whether it be, you know, like I said, as a defensive mechanism to keep, a, you know, a large animal from stepping on them or to just let other animals know they're dangerous. So they don't come and try and eat them later. Uh, as far as what they're made of, they're made of keratin. It's the same stuff that's, that our fingernails are made of. So it's kind of a thin material and they're actually pretty brittle. If they they hit their rattle on like a rock or snag it on something or something like that, often the rattle is going to break off and they might leave it behind. Oh. Um, and these, yeah, yeah, and the rattles, they develop each time the snake sheds, a new segment is added to the rattle. So, you know, um, snakes can shed multiple times a year, especially when they're younger, they're going to shed a lot. So you're going to see a lot of new segments added to the rattle. As they get older, they may only shed a couple times a year at most. And 
oftentimes a lot of uh, people will hear some of the myths about, you know, can you tell the age of a rattlesnake by the length of its rattle? And, you know, of course, uh, intuitively, you might say, yeah, that makes sense, right? You know, every year they're going to shed their skin, but, you know, it's not necessarily the case. We, um, because like I mentioned a second ago, they, they do add a segment every time they shed, and that can be a bunch of times over the years. And because they break off, you may not know if that's the original segment that that rattlesnake was born with when you're looking at it. Um, and as far as, you know, something bouncing around in them, you know, they are entirely hollow. They, they slap against each other to create this reverberance inside of the, uh, the rattle. And instead of like a thrashing motion, it, it's more of like a wave motion that the rattle goes through while they're rattling it, which is really neat. That's so cool. And I, I think a lot of people just had no idea. So I would love to actually touch a rattlesnake rattle. That would be really cool. Yeah, for sure. Come visit <laughs> us in Jacksonville sometime. We'll be Absolutely. sure to get to the cup. <laughs> Also, uh, something that is commonly seen in snakes is kind of like sticking out their tongue frequently. So I was just wondering, wh what does this mean? So snakes' tongues are really amazing. So snakes use their tongues to pick up scent particles in the areas around them. Now, the tongue itself is not a nose like what you or I would you know, think of when we're looking at mammals, but they do have an organ in the top of their mouth that those scent particles are actually deposited in, in the top of their mouth. And those scent particles can actually tell an animal or a snake the direction of what they're smelling, which is really cool. And that's kind of why you see that forked structure. You know, when they put the scent particles on what they call the Jacobson's organ in the top of their mouth, um, you'll have more scent particles on one side of that forked tongue than the other. And that can tell a snake, hey, I need to go that direction. And it's it's really neat because it helps them track scent trails of prey items. And you can actually observe a lot of species of snake when they catch a scent trail, they'll stop, they'll flick their tongue for a couple of minutes, and then they'll start following along the area where that strongest scent trail is, which is really neat. And that's generally in more um, active predator snakes. Um, you know, some of the most rattlesnakes are more ambush predator types. So they'll find a kind of game trail that's running through their area and they'll set up shop right next to that game trail and wait for their next dinner item to come running through. So that's pretty neat. That's amazing. <laughs> that's really cool. And speaking sure. of their prey, rattlesnakes are venomous. So how do they inject their venom into their prey? And, and how does the venom actually work that um, might kill an animal or uh, cause some bodily harm? Sure. So, you know, as you might imagine, venom is an extremely complicated subject. Um, yeah. <laughs> at, you know, as an organization, you know, we, we teach a number of classes um, that we discuss venom and, and how venom impacts the body as well as prey items. And we actually dedicate several hours to this during the training where we're going through it. Wow. But I'll try and put it in a nutshell best I can. <laughs> so, um, you know, all of the rattlesnakes um, that you see in the world, um, and we, of course, have multiple types of venomous snakes in the world, but all rattlesnakes have a very specific fang structure. And it's it's called selenoglyphus, which is a scientific term for it, but more simply put, it's a hinged fang. Um, so I'm sure many people have probably seen, you know, some taxidermied snake somewhere with their mouth open and their fangs, you know, kind of out of their mouth. And a lot of people wonder when they see that, they're like, okay, they've got some really big fangs in their mouth. Where are those things going when they close their mouth up? Um, and these hinged fangs actually fold up into the top of their mouth. They're, they're curved fangs. They go all the way up into the top of their mouth. 
And on top of that, what's really neat is fangs are actually shed as well, just like, you know, really? some other species that you see out there. So, you know, the snakes aren't born with the same set of fangs that they have when they're 20 years old. You know, some of them can live 20, 30 years or more on, on some of these specimens, which is neat. Um, and those fangs, every time they shed their skin, oftentimes they're going to shed their fangs or even if they break a fang because they are pretty brittle, you know, sometimes they might uh, try to bite for a prey item and they might hit something and break it or a prey item thrashes around or something like that. They can break a fang off and they'll actually swallow it when they shed it. Really? Um, Cause you might think if they're shedding it, they're going to want to spit it out of their mouth. They, they actually do <laughs> ingest those, those uh, fangs. And interestingly enough, you can find them in their feces later on. Um, you know, some <laughs> of our volunteers like to go, you know, rummaging through the snake feces <laughs> afterwards and find some fangs and they'll, you know, make a little necklace or something like that out of them. Um, <laughs> You know, from a venom uh, pr production point of view, so venom is extremely complicated, but there's a couple of different broad, different types of venom that you hear about there. You might hear the term a neurotoxin or a cytotoxin and some of these. Um, rattlesnakes, it depends on the species. And even within each individual species, you can see variation in venom types within populations, which is really interesting. Um, out here in Arizona, where I live, we have a species called the Mojave rattlesnake. And in one part of the state, they have a really nasty neurotoxin called a Mojave toxin. And in the other part of the state, they don't have that. It's primarily just a cytotoxin. So, that's you know, that's, yeah, it really is. And from a, like, you know, medical toxicology point of view, you know, we can talk about this um, after this if you want, but we've um, there's a lot of applications in the medical field that are being used with venom. And when you see a, a species that even within one species has that variation, you know, one population, you could learn something about a particular disease or a way that you can use that venom that you might not from another, um, which is really amazing and lends to some of the reasons for conserving some of these species. You know, uh, a lot of people are like, well, why do we need them? everywhere. And, you know, that's one of the things I'll often point to with that venom variation, because there's definitely, there is a human benefit there in that we may have a medicinal purpose that could come out of it, as well as just conservation of the species in general. So that's some pretty neat stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. And you probably don't want to get bitten by one of these guys, uh, or you probably want to go to the hospital as soon as you do. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> no. And you know, any venomous snake, no matter what, um, you know, we, we sometimes will hear folks in some of these areas say something like a pygmy rattlesnake or a copperhead, you shouldn't go to a hospital for it. And that's not the case. You, you should always seek medical attention. Um, there are cases where venomous snakes can have what's called a dry bite where no venom's injected, but there's really no way for you to know that. You've got to go to a hospital, wait it out and see if you have symptoms. And sometimes symptoms don't manifest right away. Um, especially with neurotoxins, it could be a few hours after you got bit before you see any symptoms. Oh, wow. And yeah, you definitely don't want to take the chance on that one. Um, no. <laughs> so do you know anything about rattlesnake roundups and how they impact populations of rattlesnakes? Yeah, absolutely. So rattlesnake roundups, um, these have been going on for a really long time. Um, and it's kind of a, you know, morbid subject and people sometimes want to avoid talking about it because it, it is pretty sad. Um, so what a rattlesnake roundup is, is in a number of states, um, there's six different states in the United States that have these rattlesnake roundups. And within them, um, there's varying degrees of, of how collections occur and, and whether or not they actually kill rattlesnakes in them. Um, principally, 
in Texas, you know, the biggest one that we see, it's called the Sweetwater Roundup. Um, you know, snakes are collected by the thousands and brought to that roundup where, you know, they're they're killed. They're on site for, you know, public display. People watch it. Um, some of it's pretty gruesome on how they do it. You know, there's young children there and things like that. Um, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where some of the roundups might collect rattlesnakes, but they release them later. And even beyond that, um, which are the ones that we actually support, and, and some of them have, uh, they kind of keep this historical name of Roundup. We encourage them to, to move away from using that. Um, there's some that have turned into conservation festivals. Um, you know, one of them that's a big conservation one is called the, the Claxton Rattlesnake Festival in Georgia. Uh, that was a Roundup for Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes for many years. And Eastern Diamondbacks are one of our flagship species that we work with. There's not many of them left in the wild. Um, they they require a big range to, to live. So, you know, they have to have these big contiguous tracts of land um, to survive and thrive. Um, but that one, it, it converted to a conservation festival. And, you know, another really cool thing that just happened recently was a festival called Wiggum Rattlesnake Festival in Georgia as well. And um, just this year, they made the announcement that they're going to be switching from a roundup to a festival, which is a huge conservation win. And um, the way that we support these festivals is we'll usually go out, we'll set up, you know, an education booth, we'll provide the festival with any resources that they might need, whether that be put uh, bring some animals to display for the public to check out, be there to answer questions, do presentations on the stage, or we might, you know, take a snake up there and talk about snake conservation and um, you know, sometimes we'll we'll have um, a rattlesnake with us that we'll use uh, an acrylic tube where we restrain part of the rattlesnake and we let um, a lot of times younger children uh, get their first chance to touch a rattlesnake in a positive way. So it's not, you know, having their first interaction is in a negative way where, you know, parents killing it in their backyard or something their first time is actually touching one at an education festival, which is really cool. That's that's really cool. And it's just that's an awesome way of turning something that is harmful to these animals into something that's actually benefiting them, which is awesome. So oh yeah, for sure. What are some of the other challenges that rattlesnakes are facing right now? Absolutely. So, you know, just like pretty much every other species in the developed world, I mean, you know, rattlesnakes are definitely harmed by some of the, the development that we're seeing around the country, um, specifically roads, though. Snakes are really susceptible to road mortality, um, rattlesnakes especially so. Uh, and that's because oftentimes, depending on the climate where they're at, you know, snakes will hang out on the roads just after dark to soak up any remaining warmth that's on the road. And of course, they're often right where the tire tracks are coming through. And, you know, sometimes and, and oftentimes, especially in many areas, people will purposefully swerve to try and run them over in those situations. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another big issue for rattlesnakes is actually um, management. So, you know, some of these, and when I say management, I mean habitat management through things like prescribed fire um, in many areas, especially the Southeast, you know, with increasing urban development in areas, a lot of places can't receive the same prescribed fire regimes that the ecosystem was evolved to deal with. And in those situations, um, the habitat where those rattlesnakes are, are foraging and, and finding rodents may not be suitable for them anymore. Um, and along with that, you know, the area that they can live in gets smaller and smaller every year. And if you remember earlier, I mentioned, you know, Eastern Diamondbacks require big tracts of area to live, you know, whereas, um, you know, something like a pygmy rattlesnake doesn't necessarily have a huge home range. They don't need a big area to live in. 
Um, another couple of threats that we see out there is um, is climate change, and I, and I mentioned that earlier. And yeah. the reason that, that climate change is an issue for some of these species is it's actually changing the ecology of the mountains where they live at, or, or is likely to change the ecology of it. And what is is likely to happen is competition with these species will change where, you know, um, in some of the mountains here in the desert southwest, you'll have an area where one rattlesnake species will live at a specific elevation, another one is a little bit lower, and there might be a little bit of an overlap with many of the species. But, um, you know, some of them might outcompete the others whenever the climate warms on the top of those mountains, where some of the ones that were living at lower elevations, because they couldn't quite handle that that cold gradient at the top of the mountain, are slowly moving up the mountain a little bit more and out-competing the ones that are at the higher elevations. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some kind of broad overview, you know, risks and threats that we see to rattlesnakes out in the world. Yeah, that that's really sad, and climate change is definitely a huge, um, huge issue that's impacting so many species. And you you just never see the end of what it's, no, you what harms it's doing. So why should we care about rattlesnakes, and why why are they important to the ecosystems that they live in? Yeah, so this this is a great question, and you know, oftentimes uh, when we're interacting with you know young children or adults, we get asked this question all the time. Um, you know, can a non venomous snake take the place of a venomous snake? Because of course. People just don't like the idea of having rattlesnakes around them, Um, you know, and one of the things that we often see in areas is you'll have a a significant change in the ecosystem structure when you're taking out really any chain in the ecosystem. I hate to give that generic um, uh, answer to that, but with rattlesnakes in specific, uh, you know, some of these species only occur in certain habitats where other species don't. Uh, and where they do, they can play a significant role in the ecosystems, not only as a predator, but also as a prey item and also as a seed disperser, which is something a lot of people don't think about. Really? Um, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, the way that they work as seed dispersers, so oftentimes, you know, they'll eat a rodent who will have undigested seeds in their cheek pouches. And those seeds are not digested by the snake. So they're they're defecated later on and they're dispersed. Whereas, you know, when a rodent's eating them, a lot of those seeds are getting ground up and they may not get dispersed out into the ecosystem afterwards. And there was a recent study a few years ago um, that they they looked at just that and found that, you know, rattlesnakes were actually significant seed dispersers, which was really cool. Um, in beyond that, you know, they also act as prey items. You know, you might have something like a bird of prey that's going to eat them out in the wild. Um, and any number of other species that, that can predate on them. And beyond that, um, you know, we can talk a little bit about how venom has played its role in um, uh, developing modern medicines. So we have some medications out there, like uh, there's one called Integralin. It's really commonly commonly used in emergency rooms during open heart surgery, heart failure, and things like that. That medication was actually developed from the dusky pygmy rattlesnake, which is really a significant discovery that happened a number of years ago and really helped kick off a lot of the study of of modern medicine using venoms. Um, And another one that we see out there, it's not specific to rattlesnakes, but just venom in general, is a medication called captopril. It was developed from a snake called the Yaracara um, in South America. And that is a really common blood pressure medication. It's an ACE inhibitor. Tons of people take it out there. And that's a medication that was developed from a venomous snake. So if we tie it back to what we were talking about earlier, when you look at conservation of these species, um, if we are eliminating a population of a species because 
you know, whether it's from urban development or climate change, you know, we have the potential that we're losing the cure for cancer, for Alzheimer's. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that some of these venoms have serious uh, pharmaceutical applications that are being researched. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Alzheimer's because there's actually some research being done right now using snake venom, specifically neurotoxins, to treat Alzheimer's and reverse damage or stop damage from occurring from Alzheimer's in the brain, which is um, truly, you know, a, a, an absolutely amazing discovery. And, you know, there's there's a pretty long list of uh, different types of medications out there that have been developed from them, but those are a couple that are, are really significant finds that have uh, been discovered recently. That's so interesting. So needless to say, I mean, rattlesnakes are not only important for their ecosystems, but for us and the medical community. Yeah, for sure. It's something you never think about. Um, Well, uh, this is going to be my last question. So um, what is something that the average person can do to help rattlesnakes? Well, it depends on where you live. But if you live somewhere where there's rattlesnakes, you know, the biggest thing to do is give them a break. You know, these... (laughs) These seriously, the, the, these snakes, they, they've got a hard life. You know, a lot of times they'll have a litter that's born with 20, 30, 40 babies at most. Um, and out of those, only one or two of them are going to make it to adulthood. And that's without human impacts on them. So when you run over an adult eastern diamondback that maybe is a female, maybe is a male on the road, you know, that specimen that you ran over could have been anywhere from 10 to 20 years old. And you've put that entire ecosystem back, you know, 10, 20 years or more, along with the number of generations that could have been propagated from that species. So when I say give them a break, I mean, both literally and figuratively, you know, step on your brakes, let them cross the road. I'm not asking people to love rattlesnakes. I know it's for some people, (laughs) they just, they don't like them. But, you know, if you're willing to give them a pass and say, hey, you know what, I live in their world, you know, and, and let them um, continue to coexist on your property. That's wonderful. Um, and some of the things that go with it, you know, oftentimes we'll hear folks mention they're concerned about their kids or pets in their backyard is look at ways that you can make your yard not rattlesnake friendly to keep them from interacting with your kids or, or pets, um, but still allow them to live in the environment that's around your yard. You know, you might butt up to a conservation area where you get a lot of snakes that end up in your yard, but you don't necessarily need to kill everyone that you can see because they're going to keep coming. You're going to still get more later on in that area. So you can do things like uh, rattlesnake fencing. There's the um, or snake fencing more generally. Um, some folks in different parts of the country will install, it's um, basically just mesh fabric that goes at the bottom of a fence that precludes most venomous snakes from climbing over the fence and getting into the yard in your area. Um, and, you know, some of the other things that you can do to keep them out of your yard is keeping your, your grass mowed low, don't have a ton of weeds, don't have, you know, wood piles or big rock piles in your yard that would act as good den sites or, or places that they can hide out and things like that. Um, so from, you know, if you want to get more involved in conservation beyond that, um, you know, our organization has tons of volunteering opportunities where, you know, you can link up with our team where we do everything from education at local schools. We do summer camps as well as up into um, adult education. We've got training courses that we do. We do a lot of public outreach that we work with different individuals on those. Um, you know, and of course, ultimately, um, financial support is always welcomed as an organization because there's not much funding hanging out there for, for rattlesnake conservation. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good gist of different ways that you can get involved and help out with uh, rattlesnakes. 
Yeah, definitely. And speaking of that, uh, where can we find some information about your organization? Sure, you can check out our website, um, which is Save the Buzz Tales, B U Z Z T A I L S dot org. That's uh, a nickname for rattlesnakes. Um, or you can find us on on Facebook and Instagram. You know, under the Rattlesnake Conservancy. You know, we post a ton of information out there. Um, we do like a Meet the Species Monday thing every week, where you can learn something about a different rattlesnake species every week, um, as well as different you know um, events and educational opportunities that we're involved in. That's awesome. Everybody should go check them out. And Tony, thanks so much again for joining me today. I, I really learned so much about rattlesnakes. So thank you. Sure. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate you having us on here and appreciate your support. Tony had so much cool information about rattlesnakes. It made me realize how misunderstood these animals are and how important they are to our ecosystems. If you're interested in helping rattlesnakes, you should absolutely check out the Rattlesnake Conservancy. They're doing really awesome work to educate people about these animals. Some other organizations that help rattlesnakes that you should definitely take a look at are the Rattlesnake Preservation Trust and Advocates for Snake Preservation. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of the rattlesnake. You can find the sources that we use for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday to learn about another animal. And that's On Wildlife. You've been listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray, brought to you every Wednesday.